My name is Michelle T. Sanchez, and I choose truth over tribe. Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? I think it's all too easy for Christians of every political stripe to believe that the Bible doesn't have much to say about race, racism, ethnicity. Uh, but of course, that's not the case. It's a theme that we've talked a lot about on this podcast. But I recently picked up a book by Michelle T. Sanchez called Color Courageous Discipleship. And it was one of the most interesting books I've read on race because she gives a vision for how not only we've been discipled by our culture to think about race and ethnicity, but how the Bible and Jesus re-disciple us into a healthy way of not just understanding racism and ethnicity, but also resisting and dismantling racism in our communities. She looks at themes like how we pray and how we read our Bible, how we fast. It's a fascinating book that reimagines how our spiritual disciplines can be used to create racial and ethnic healing. This is a fantastic interview. We go over a wide range of topics. We talk about the use of words and phrases like woke and anti-racism and what they can mean positively and the ways in which they've also been weaponized or misunderstood understood. It's an interesting conversation, and I think you're going to love hearing from Michelle. Michelle, it's fantastic to have you on the show with us today. I have heard so many lovely things about Truth Over Tribe, and I am delighted <laughs> to be with you. Well, hopefully I don't prove them all wrong. Let's see how <laughs> this goes. <laughs> when I talk to Christians about race and ethnicity, one of the most common obstacles that I find is what I like to call racial tabula rasa. You know, so tabula rasa, that's the Latin word for blank slate. And it's not just the idea of colorblindness, you know, that I don't see race, but the idea that my outlook on race is a blank slate, that I haven't really been shaped or formed by my culture around me. My outlook is basically racially neutral. But in your book, you explore the idea that everyone, you and me, is discipled by the world around them, and no one's racial outlook is neutral. We're all disciples of our cultural environment. And I think if we're blind to that, we'll never see our need to be discipled in issues of race and ethnicity by Jesus instead. And so I think it'd be great just to start with your own story. How are you discipled to think about race and ethnicity? And how did you become conscious of that discipleship that had happened? All right, Patrick. So, you know, I am a discipleship practitioner and in my work, including my work on race, I constantly go back to what was Jesus's core message. And really it was repent and believe the kingdom of God, right? Repent and believe. And so there is a two-part process to that, right? Acknowledging that for most things in our broken world as sinful people, we've got to 
take something off before we can put on the way of Christ. We've got to make a pivot in the direction we're headed in before we can go in God's way, right? And that is true of race as well. And I think that that's one of the things that once we realize it, I think it's really transformational. It's not that you're starting from a blank slate. It's not that I was starting from a blank slate on my own journey. I had to understand, well, how have I been formed in this? And was that the way of Christ? Right. And so that's the question I want to challenge us all that probably most of us have not been racially discipled in the way of Christ. So let's identify how we've been formed and then what we might want to do differently. So in my case, I have a bit of a unique story, I'll say. I am African American and Caribbean American. Oh, and by the way, my last name's Sanchez. That comes from my husband, Mickey, but I'm not Latino. I'm Black. But, you know, I really was part of the colorblind generation. You know, my parents basically raised me not to pay too much attention to race. And, you know, I'd say like the Cosby show, you know, I grew up on that. Claire Huxtable was my idol. And just the idea that, you know what? Civil rights movement is over. That really sucked. We've made a lot of progress. Let's just focus on accomplishment, doing well. And basically, I was just formed and shaped to do as well as I could do and, you know, meritocracy and do well with my life and not to look back. And so part of the reason that that also could work for me and my family is that my parents were able to raise me in a predominantly white, well-resourced context, Okay. And so I was very acclimated to white culture, lots of great education throughout my life. And so it was easy for me, frankly, to do well, to succeed, to do better than my parents did and to move on in life. Now, let me say this. I had a massive awakening when I worked as an investment banker at Goldman Sachs, right? So I'm living the dream. (laughs) Like I'm living the dream. I'm living like Claire Huxtable from the Cosby show. I'm this professional woman. I'm making money. I'm doing well for myself as a black woman, right? And I volunteered for a day at an inner city school in New York City. I was going there and thinking, wow, this is going to be great. This is going to be little versions of me. And I just need to inspire them to learn and work hard and they'll do as well as I have, right? And so I go to this school on that day. Of course, it was predominantly black and brown. It was in a completely dilapidated facility, dark, dirty. It was overrun with kids. The classroom was overflowing. There were kids sitting in the hallway trying to hear me. It was loud. It was, I just could not believe I was still in the United States visiting this school. And I realized in a huge way, wow, if I had grown up in this kind of environment, I don't think I would be where I am today, you know, as hard as I might try, like... We're not all starting out in the same place. And over time, I began to discover things, Patrick, like my parents grew up in the South Bronx and that's where I was born, which is, of course, under-resourced, predominantly black and brown. They were blessed to participate in a low-income housing program that got them out to a predominantly white, well-resourced part of Long Island. It was because of that break that I grew up. So I just realized, my goodness, right? I am an exception to the rule. There's still a rule though. And I've come to see and been awakened to the fact that we still have massive racial disparity in our world. And there are exceptions to the rule, many. And I happen to be one, but my goodness, I myself was blind to the fact that, you know what? Meritocracy isn't always enough. We're not starting in the right place. 
I have to confess, I would sometimes look at my own people, kind of like Bill Cosby did. I would look at my own people and be like, you need to get your act together. Why aren't you getting your act together so you could be successful like me? You know, you're giving us a bad name. Those kinds of things, right? I have been discipled in that, Patrick. And it took the Lord, you know, just graciously opening my eyes over time. No, you have been blessed. You have had opportunities and now you have a platform. And are you going to use it to make a difference or not? One of the things you also talk a bit about in the book was your experience going up through the education system and then obviously into Goldman Sachs and the way in which you were still very conscious of your race and maybe the need to over-succeed to prove that you were different, maybe. I don't want to put words That's into right. that. But can you share a bit about that? Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. So, right. Um, like many other uh, Black young people, and maybe especially Black women, I was told, look, in terms of the social hierarchy, you're at the bottom here. And so if you want to do even as well as... <laughs> your white brothers and sisters, you have to try twice as hard and you have to be as close to perfect as possible. You don't have any room to mess up. And look, Patrick, this explains a lot of my neurosis. If you get to know me, I am definitely a very perfectionistic person. And, you know, the Lord has worked his grace in my life over time in that. But yeah, I've lived my whole life in kind of a constant state of fear and the need to prove that I'm worthy to be in the room because I'm a black woman. And that's not been healthy. Was that something that you were consciously taught or was that something you just caught from the world around you? Oh, both and. Yeah. 100% both and. I think most young black people growing up in families that want more for them will say some variation of that theme. You're going to have to work harder. I think you talk about Dr. Richard Winner's book, Perfecting Yourself or Perfecting Ourselves to Death. Yes. I read that book as well because I have struggled in the past with perfectionistic tendencies. Yeah. It was really striking to me, though, because the reason why I struggle with those perfectionistic tendencies, for me, it didn't have the same racial valence as a white man. Of course. And when you were describing it, I thought, oh, my gosh, we were reading the same book. And you maybe could have looked at our lives and some of the struggles in our lives and said, oh, there's some similarities here. But what was sitting behind it was so radically different. And again, this just shows to me that we have all been discipled by our culture and how we think about race and ethnicity. Yeah. Perfecting Ourselves to Death. Great book. It made a big difference in my life years ago. One of the things you do in your book, and you'll see lots of authors out there doing this, but I think it's really helpful, is distinguishing race and ethnicity. Because I think most people use those as synonyms, and race is the more common of the two <laughs> synonyms. Yes. So I want to go back to this theme of discipleship in just a second, but I do think it's really important to maybe parse apart those definitions and explain why they matter when we're thinking about discipleship in particular. I just want to say, whenever we are engaged in a controversial or really challenging subject, what I have found is that words really matter, like how we're using our words, because they end up constantly being kind of misunderstood and or weaponized, depending on who's using them. And so there's just so much confusion in the way we talk, and then we can talk past each other. So yes, I take quite a lot of time in my work to talk about words and what they mean. And of course, meanings also shift over time, and I'm sure we'll get into that as well. Uh, but with these two words in particular, yes, race and ethnicity, right in the first chapter, I make a distinction between that. So race, race is a man-made construct designed to exert power over one another, basically. Whereas ethnicity is a beautiful God-designed gift designed by God 
to bring glory to himself and enrichment to his entire kingdom. So you will not find race in the Bible as such. You know, all of the Christian authors and speakers on this subject would agree to that. Race kind of comes later. The idea of these colors, black and white and yellow, and what that means, you know, in the world, kind of mushing lots of ethnicities together into these labels, that came later, (laughs) okay? And so you won't find race as such in the Bible. You will find ethnicity. From beginning to end, we see that our God absolutely loves the diversity of the creation that he has made. He called us to be fruitful and to multiply, to spread throughout the earth. And from Abraham, you know, saying, I want you to be a blessing to all of the nations, you know, in the original languages, the word is kind of broader than that, like ethnic groups, cultures, all of the beautiful different peoples. Jesus says, go and bless all of the nations. That word there is ethne in Greek, go and bless all of the ethnic groups. And then of course, in Revelation 7, 9, where everyone, all the different tongues and tribes and ethnicities are around the throne, right? And so the point is, ethnicity is beautiful. It is designed by God. He wants us to pay attention to them and to cross over divides where they exist. Let me try to say back to you what I think you're communicating, which is that race is a social construct that comes later in human history than ethnicity. Ethnicity is innate, right? We have people who are coming from different languages, cultures. Race is fixated on skin tone. Race is fixated on a hierarchy that is based on skin colors. And it's almost a taxonomy, like a really neat way of categorizing all of these different ethnic groups and saying, well, this is what's true of people who have this kind of skin color, which might be a whole subset of ethnic groups. This is what they're like. And this is what these people are like. And this is where they fit in society. Well, that's where I was going to go. Was I think someone could hear you or me say, hey, race is a social construct and then draw the next conclusion, which is therefore it doesn't exist. Could you respond to that? I mean, are, 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 are you saying no, race doesn't exist? What I'm saying is basically uh, two things at once, which is race clearly exists in that we use it every day as a social construct. And unfortunately, we don't have the option for that. It is something that's exists now for centuries, you know, and so we still need to pay attention to its realities. Maybe that's a good way to put it. And so that is on the one hand. On the other hand, though, what we want to understand is really we want to dismantle this construct over time. We want to dismantle it, meaning the negativity, the negative impact that it's had on our society and on building beloved community. We want to get rid of that. But we don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Ethnicity, still, all of the beautiful cultures that God has created. I mean, there's this scripture where it says, you know, in the end times, God will have all of the different ethnicities, the the different peoples of the world bring their cultural treasures before God and into the new creation. We don't want to throw that away, okay? Every people group has something beautiful to contribute to the kingdom of God. But this idea of a power struggle based on an oversimplified taxonomy of people, no, we want to get rid of that. This is really helpful for me because it helps me realize that race is real in the sense that on the one hand, people, all of us who live in this society have a racialized consciousness. Yeah, We've been trained in this 
socialized way of thinking about the world. But it's not just that. That racial consciousness has been embedded into social structures. And those are very real. As, you know, what's happening in my mind is real, but also what's happening in our society is real. And so on the one hand, we can say, yes, this is a social construct. But on the other hand, we can't go the opposite direction of saying, therefore, it has no impacts. It's not real. It's imaginary. It's made up because it is all around us. And this is part of how I've been discipled is to think racially. I mean, that's what these definitions are so helpful for me as we're discussing them is to get my own head out of that kind of racialized thinking and to put into the foreground the beauty of ethnic diversity. That's actually a different way of thinking about reality than I was trained in. And so I think it's really helpful. One of the things you said earlier was that you really care about words because words matter. That's what we're talking about. They shape how we think. And I want to go back because I noticed earlier when you were talking about your experience in that school, you described what it would require to be successful. And I caught you catching yourself and say, no, I don't want to say successful. Was there a reason for that? Is there even our idea of success somewhat racialized? Is that kind of behind that? I'm just curious. I just noticed that. Yes. But my hope in visiting that school was to help them achieve, right? Whatever that looked like. But I realized in the process that we have to start earlier than that. We are not starting at the same point. So it's not just about me coming in and telling them to work hard and putting all of the onus on these students, right? Whereas I thought I was in a third world country in this school, you know, in the United States of America to see clearly, it's not about me seeing what they need to do only, but also seeing what we need to do in order to help these students achieve their best. When we're talking about the idea of race and ethnicity, like you said, race isn't a biblical concept. Ethnicity is a biblical concept. I think that leads to the next question is, well, okay, so we can talk about ethnicity from a biblical perspective, but does the Bible have anything to say about our racialized consciousness or the ways in which we've embedded that racial structure into our social order? How does the Bible speak to those issues? Like many topics that we deal with thousands of years after the Bible was composed, (laughs) there's many things the Bible does not directly address because they weren't in existence, right? Obviously, it's something like artificial intelligence, which we're all really starting to get into. I mean, my goodness, what does the Bible have to say about that? And it's the work of theologians and writers and frankly, everyday disciples to see the biblical principles at play and apply them to our modern context, right? And so, yes, the Bible does not talk about race. It does talk about ethnic conflict. It does talk about ethnocentrism, right? Groups thinking that they're better than other groups and dominating them. It was more on the basis of nation and ethnicity than the racial construct. But we can say, okay, there are parallels. There are absolutely parallels there. And then, of course, you know, we see in the life of Jesus in particular, this care for the marginalized groups and a desire to dismantle any kind of prejudice against them and to lift them up with the dignity with which they were created. The main example of that in Jesus' time was with the Samaritan people. Again, an ethnic group, but it would be the closest we have today to race and we can make parallels. And so Jesus, you know, very intentionally takes his disciples to Samaria 
to do ministry, to engage with the people. And this was a marginalized ethnic group. It was a core part of Jesus' ministry. And he lifts up Samaritans, like in the parable of the Good Samaritan, as a hero, the most marginalized ethnic group he lifts up. So there's so many things we see when we read the Bible in living color, which I talk about in my book, that we see. So there are major parallels, especially when it comes to ethnic tensions and marginalized peoples that we can apply to our racial challenges today. In your book, you also talk about colorblindness, which you've already brought up in this conversation. And you argue that's not an ideal for Christians, which I think more people are conscious of the idea that colorblindness isn't helpful today than were even five or six years ago. But I still sense a lot of resistance from people when I say, hey, that's actually not the answer. And you know, you propose the solution or the answer of color courageous discipleship. But maybe explain what's the problem with color blindness? And why is color courageous discipleship a better alternative, a better framework? When it comes to so many of our hardest conversations and challenges, I think what we're constantly tempted to do is an either or just, you know, this is all bad, that is all good, right? And very rarely, (laughs) I mean, there's very few things that we can say that about. And so I like to say, look, Colorblindness essentially was the solution coming out of the civil rights movement for many people. It was like, okay, clearly it's not good to be racist bigots anymore. Okay, our differences are causing us problems. So what can we do to address this? I know, let's downplay our differences. Let's just downplay those and then we can maybe achieve equality, right? That's terrible advice in most of life. Like if you have terrible conflict with your spouse, the solution is not to submerge the problem and ignore it. It's a very Midwestern solution. I grew up in the Midwest. Like, yes, let's just yes. not talk about it. Let's ignore it. But- you got it. You got it. Right. So let's downplay our differences. Now, here's the key. There are some good things about colorblindness. Okay, that's why it's helped us achieve many things in society, partly because colorblindness is like, okay, let's focus on what is the same. And Patrick, there are many things that should be the same among people. For example, we are all equally created in the image of God. And absolutely, I hope that when you are looking at people of different racial backgrounds, you are seeing the equal image of God in all of them. And in that case, downplaying what they look like right? And so absolutely, yes. So we're all equally deserving of dignity is another example. Yes. No matter what I look like, you better downplay my difference to see I deserve dignity as well as everybody else. And so I think part of the resistance that we hear when we say, let's move on from colorblindness is that people sense that, right? They sense, well, you know, in some ways we do need to see everyone the same way. And I completely agree. The problem, Patrick, the problem is that it has its limitations. What we want is a both and. We want to see everyone as equally deserving of dignity and created in the image of God. But in a broken world, difference tends to lead to disparity. Despite our best intentions, Okay. In a broken world, difference does tend to lead to disparities. And so in addition to seeing that everyone is equally created in the image of God, we also need to open our eyes to any disparities that might exist and that need to be addressed. 
So the issue with colorblindness and why it doesn't take us all the way to where we need to go is that if you don't see race, then you can't see racism. Yeah. If you can't see race, you can't see racism. Okay. You're just going to miss it because you're intent on seeing what's the same, but not on seeing what may be some painful and important differences, right? That need to be addressed. So color courageous basically just means, okay, yes, see everyone the same, but also appreciate our ethnic differences. And we've already talked about that. Appreciate the gifts of our diverse ethnicities. Don't miss that. And deal with any disparities that may be at work. When I talk to people about this, one of my favorite examples, and I think you mentioned this in the book, is talking about people applying for jobs and how people read names and how you are much less likely to get an interview, much less get hired if your name is not a white-sounding name. And that's, in many cases, unconscious bias. The person is probably not consciously sitting there saying, oh, this doesn't sound like a white person, so I'm going to set their resume aside. But if you're colorblind and you're not aware of the disparities, you're not even aware in your own consciousness the disparities that exist, right? right. You can't address them. And that's why I love you know, your concept of saying, no, we need to be color courageous. We need to celebrate what's different. But also, at the same time, we need to try to rectify the disparities that exist inside of not just our own hearts and minds, but inside of our churches and our social order, you know, our life together. It's a beautiful picture because it's not antagonistic. It's hopeful. <laughs> That's one of my favorite things about your book. Is I, I walked away feeling convicted and hopeful. And that's what you said earlier. Like, that's repent and believe. And so, you know, in your book, you talk about several different paradigm shifts that you want people to go through to be color courageous disciples. And we won't go through all of them here. Everybody listening, you should go read the book because you're getting like the short review of it right here. <laughs> so if there's, you're hearing good things. There's a lot more good stuff. But one of the things you talk about is the need for awakening. That's a paradigm shift people need to go through. Can you describe that? What do you mean by awakening? Oh, man. Okay. I always love to go back to the fact that we are followers of Jesus Christ, right? And to look at his life and how did he shape the disciples? And I think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? He's been with these disciples. He's trained them. He's shaped them as much as he could. And yet they're falling asleep there in the garden at a time when they should be awake and alert, right? And he's constantly urging them, stay awake, stay awake. Why? Because Danger is around us, darkness is around us, and it's really easy to miss it, <laughs> right? You need to be alert. And then, of course, the Apostle Paul also, you know, there's places where he says to Christians, Patrick, he's talking to believers, that you need to stay awake and alert. Why? Because the world, there is darkness that we are called to address. Darkness, though, can also make you fall asleep. <laughs> you could be just cozy and just enter into slumber. And like unaware of what is going on around you. So there's something about, especially for those who are committed to God, following Christ, that we still need to remain awake and alert to the darkness that's going on. That's where I start, okay? And say, listen, there are areas as disciples where I may be more alert than other areas, right? And for all of us, there may just be things we're missing. We're just sleeping. We're just kind of not aware that there's a part of our lives and our discipleship that, oh, we need to wake up. We need to be aware. We need to do something, right? And so for me, you know, again, I am a Black 
woman. But I really, not until the last five years or so, I was sort of also asleep to the continuing racial inequities in our society in almost every category that can be measured. And I lay this out very clearly in the book, although you can also just Google it, right? Racial inequality continuing today, right, in America. And you'll see, wow, we still have, although we say we're all equal, massive racial inequality. I had to see it. I had to awaken to that, like wake up. It's not just about trying harder. It's yes, yes. Okay. I'm not saying you don't do that, but there's a lot more going on here that we need to be aware and awaken to. And so my style, frankly, Patrick, I don't appreciate, or I should say my style is not to kind of lash at people. <laughs> I don't get that sense. Yeah. I like to assume that most people, most disciples are trying their best. Okay. Are really trying their best to follow Jesus, be faithful to do what's right. And so the reality is though, yes, that is true. And we may still be asleep. So I just want to nudge you to wake up. <laughs> As I was reading your book, I was thinking about an experience I had in my own life. We live about two hours west of St. Louis, where Ferguson is located in St. Louis. And so when the protests had started there around Michael Brown's death, those protests kind of migrated over into Columbia. And it began a number of protests here. There was a hunger strike that led to our football team basically refusing to play a game unless our university president was fired. So this was a very big thing, right, in our community. And I went to the University of Missouri. I was a college ministry leader at the university. University of Missouri. So I'd been there at that point for about nine years, you know, so I had a lot of experience at Mizzou. And, you know, as I heard students talking about, you know, racial inequality and inequity, I was scratching my head just to be honest. I I don't see that. And I will never forget sitting down with a black student and saying, hey, I'm not seeing something. Can you tell me what I'm not seeing? And he started asking me questions and he said, okay, Patrick, of your white friends, how many of them have to work full time or close to full time to be able to keep going to college? I was like, uh, well, virtually none of them. He's like, okay, how many of them had to send money back home sometimes? Okay, virtually none of them. He goes, do you think that might impact your ability to graduate? I'm like, yeah. And he goes, okay, how many times have you been called a racialized name on our campus? I'm like, none. He's like, have you ever been chased by someone of the opposite race? I'm like, no. Let's never. He starts going through these stories, and it was an awakening, right? And that was actually the first time I heard the use of the word woke. I mean, for me, as a white person, it very much so felt like I was awoken to something that I could not see. But once I saw it, I couldn't unsee it everywhere around me. And so obviously that word, it's become a bit of a lightning rod and you don't seem very afraid to use it in your book. So I'm curious, I've really wrestled with this. It's become a kind of derogatory term now on the right. And it's come to encapsulate things that aren't what I mean when it was 2015 and someone said what it meant to be woke, which was more of a racialized consciousness awakening. Do you think we should use that word? Do you think we should leave that word behind? Do you think that people who are using it in a kind of derogatory, like I'm slamming, I'm dunking on you way, should stop using it in that way? Because I've had lots of conversations with black and white friends about this exact topic, and I kind of want your take. So my take is that we need to have a kind of double consciousness around this word woke. We need to operate, yes, number one, in the reality that today you know, it has garnered negative connotations. And there is a story behind that, of course, right? When the word woke originated in the Black community, you know, long time ago to describe the need to awaken in the ways that we have been describing already. It was a beautiful word. It was used as an empowering concept. 
and it resonated with many people. And so as recently as a decade ago, it was a positive word. It was something that we wanted to strive to. But, you know, we went through a huge racial upheaval in the last five years or so. And since then, the word has unfortunately been co-opted and weaponized. And so now it is used as sort of a scary word, as something that it was never intended to be. But that's the current reality, right? And so I do need to be careful of when and how I specifically use the word woke. Now, on the other hand, I talk about in the book how the concept of awakening goes way back. It goes way back to Jesus and the scriptures about the need for those who are already committed to God to awaken consistently to new areas in their life and to be alert to darkness that might be operating and evil operating around them. That's the core call of any disciple. But interestingly, if we step back and look at history, we will constantly see the idea of awakening being tied to racial equality and rights. And so, for example, I have this picture in my book of something called the Wide Awake Club, and it is a certificate, okay? And it was in the time of Lincoln. They had something called the Wide Awake Club, free speech, free soil, free men. And essentially to be wide awake was to acknowledge, we got to get rid of this slavery thing. Okay, we have to awaken to this. This is not okay, right? This is way before woke, Patrick, (laughs) that people were talking about being wide awake. And, you know, Martin Luther King in his time had an incredible quote. I'll read it. He said, one of the great liabilities of history is that all too many people fail to remain awake. And that one of the great challenges is that we constantly are slumbering through big periods of change where we could be active and making a difference and we're snoring. So this is a theme, this idea of awakening, it goes right back to the scriptures and it has been used throughout time, especially with regard to racial injustice. And so, no, I am not going to allow people to completely, you know, weaponize this concept now so that we basically continue to slumber our way through everything. I remain sensitive specifically to the word woke now, unfortunately, but not to the concept of awakening. That is true. I think that's helpful. And I think the historical context really, really matters here. It's one reason I've leaned on my friends on the right and said, hey, I think we need to stop using the word woke. One, because if you're a white person, it's not a word that is coming out of your culture and you might be misusing it. So let's start there. <laughs> right. But number two, there's a long history that's actually beautiful and lovely that we should be affirming. But the last reason is that it's a really sloppy way of speaking because you're not actually describing the beliefs because inside of that one word woke, there might be a lot of true ideas and true true understandings of inequity inside of our culture. And there might be some things that we really, as Christians, need to press against and say, that's not right. We're not a part of it. But you've slapped it all into one Lump big it all package. Together. And now you end up rejecting the whole thing is the baby with the bathwater. And so I do think that for people on the right, we need better language than yeah. using woke as a hammer to beat up people on the left. And, you know, I'm less trying to push against my friends on the left where I say, hey, just because something falls into this category of woke doesn't mean that it is an issue as Christians that should be driving our activism, our behavior and what we're doing. And that history that you just shared is beautiful. I really don't want to let go of the word. I've kind of ceased using it. I like that you say, hey, like awakening, that's helpful. It's a powerful paradigm shift. It's helpful, Patrick, because it's in the Bible. Okay. And that's our textbook. 
We'll get back to the episode in just a moment. But today, I want to invite you to become a partner with us through giving. If you enjoy this podcast and God is using it to change your heart and make you more like him, I hope that you will partner with us. If you've heard the stories of lives that have been changed, marriages that have been reconciled, church families that have been brought back together that were divided by political tribalism, and you want to hear more stories like that, again, I hope you'll partner with us by giving. Of course, I wish we could pull off a podcast without any cost, but running these things can be expensive, and your partnership in ministry with us goes a long way towards making Truth Over Tribe sustainable in the long term. If you want to give, click the link in our show notes, or you can go to choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. That's choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. I hope you'll partner with us in this gospel-centered ministry to glorify Jesus by fighting tribalism in our churches, in our communities, and in our families. In the last part of your book, you talk about color courageous spiritual practices. I will be honest, this was an entirely new idea to me. I've read books on spiritual disciplines. I've read books on reading our Bible and prayer. You talk about pilgrimage as well, which we won't get into today. I haven't read a book on pilgrimage, so you were my introduction to pilgrimage. Uh, it was a beautiful chapter. Yay, though, really, oh, again, nice. I want to commend the book, and I hope people read it. But what I loved about your color courageous spiritual practices was that it was helping us to see how the ordinary means of grace and tools of discipleship are actually tools that we need to dismantle racism in our minds and hearts and in our communities. That's a beautiful idea. So I want to start with Bible reading. Let's just start there. But you talk about reading and living color. What does that mean? And how could we change our Bible reading to become color courageous disciples? One of the concepts that I wanted to get at in this book is it's not just enough that we do spiritual practices. It matters how we do them. So if I'm going to look at, you know, the history of Christianity in America, for example, in the South for hundreds of years, we had Christianity, we had slavery and brutality. So I believe these folks, they're reading their Bible. You know, (laughs) they are praying. They're doing all kinds of traditional spiritual things. They're worshiping, right? But how were they doing it? What was included? What was excluded, right? What were they missing? There was something distorted about the way they were engaging in spiritual practices in order to justify ongoing brutality, just to be, you know, really blunt. But there's ways in which that's true. How can we read the Bible in a way that fosters color courageous discipleship and beloved community? And one of the things I say, essentially, we want to read the Bible more deeply, Right now, we often read it in a kind of flat way, a kind of like black and white, right? We're reading it in black and white and not noticing the many, many places where ethnicity is mentioned, where it's highlighted, where there's a special point being made about marginalized peoples. We just don't see it because we're not really looking for it. But when we do, all kinds of things stand out. So that, I think, learning to read the Bible with a kind of color consciousness, it's more fun, (laughs) it's more challenging, it's more interesting, right? All of these things. That's something that I say, you will become color courageous 
as you read the Bible in living color, as it was actually intended to be read. Can you give us some examples of that, of how reading in living color, how it brings the Bible to light in a fresh way, in a way that we need to hear? Just to give people, because, you know, sometimes examples help that land. Oh, my goodness. So when we look at the career of Jesus, just focusing in on him and his story. So right from the beginning, we're given a genealogy. Now, this is the Jewish savior. He's here to fulfill the call to the Jews and their purpose in the world. But we get this genealogy right from the start where several non-Jews, Gentiles, are named as an important part of his genealogy. It's kind of scandalous, frankly, because there's even like Rahab is mentioned and she's a Canaanite. So we've got a Canaanite Gentile. Wow. Like in the lineage, in the line of Jesus, it's in him, right? Interesting. Okay. Galilee is where he performed most of his ministry. Okay, fine. You know, great. It's a place. What it was known as was Galilee of the Gentiles. He specifically chose this region because of the ethnic diversity that was available to him there. So he's ministering to the Jews, yes, but he's also ministering to all kinds of people, specifically Galilee of the Gentiles. And then we look at all the people he's ministering to and the stories he's telling, and we could see, oh, wow, there's five, six, seven different types of peoples here. And this is why Jesus was in Galilee. We see that. His first sermon, when he says, okay, the Lord has anointed me to preach the good news and to heal and to set the captives free or whatever. And everyone listening to him in the synagogue was like, hey, wonderful, great. you know." But then he shifts and he says, now, I also want you to know that actually this is for Gentiles too. And there's going to be a way in which my own people are not going to receive it like the Gentiles will. And God's for them too. And that's when they run him out and try to kill him, throw him off the cliff. His first sermon is this basically color courageous sermon. We miss it. Like we remember, right? That he's like, oh yeah, kingdom of God. That's great. They tried to kill him after his first sermon because he started talking about race, (laughs) you know, ethnicity. He started talking about that subject and they didn't like it either. We're going to spend the next 10 minutes on this. I'm just going to keep asking for more because they're really good. I mean, I just want to name something. It's really not how people read. I mean, all those stories, like let's take Rahab. I was taught to read that genealogy as Rahab was a sinner, right? And so she was representative of us as sinners. We're just like Rahab. And she's in, you know, Jesus' genealogy and completely missed. Oh, by the way, she was a Canaanite. And Ruth, oh, by the way, she was a Moabite. And this is running through the whole thing. And so that's why these are so helpful is because it's not that we haven't read them. It's that we have a way of reading them, which might not be false, right? It might be true to say that there's something beautiful about, you know, a prostitute in Jericho being called and being made a part of the genealogy of Jesus. That is a beautiful message for sinners just like me. But it's also more than that. Oh, so good. And that exactly example of Rahab, like a kind of colorblind reading is good. Like that is an application. She's a sinner. We're sinners. Jesus is for everybody, you know, whatever. Yes. Right. And, (laughs) and there's a point being made about her racial difference, her ethnic difference that also would have really kind of scandalized people hearing it. Right. Yeah. So that's colorblind to color courageous. It's both ends. (laughs) And yet the last example I was going to give is what did Jesus say at the end of his ministry, right? First of all, go and make disciples of all nations. That word nation is ethne in the Greek, ethne, ethnicity, 
Go and make disciples of all of the beautiful, diverse, colorful peoples of this world because that is the heart of God. I want you to cross over divides. I want you to figure out how to do that because that's my dream. And then go from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth, right? Again, he's specifically mentioning these differences that he wants us to cross boundaries of ethnicity in the work that he's doing. This is the commission. So if you're just making disciples of people who look like you, I mean, it's okay, it's okay, but we're still missing something that was in the heart of Jesus. It is such a colorful, incredible story to read the Bible that way. And I'm just talking about Jesus, right? There's so many other examples of this in the Bible. Another example that comes to my mind is the book of Galatians, which I don't know how many times I read it before I realized something. And I read a truth into it, which is that we are justified by faith. And that's a beautiful truth that can be found in both the book of Galatians and Ephesians. What I'm about to say is true, both those books as well. But then I began to read the works of N.T. Wright, and I began to realize all of a sudden that that wasn't the only thing that was happening there, that actually there was ethnic division inside of these churches, and that these letters were written to help the churches resist that ethnic division and become unified with one another through Jesus's blood, that this was part of what his blood did. It brought communities together. And why it was so important for me in my personal life was it made me realize that if I wanted to apply Ephesians or Galatians to my life, it wasn't enough just to have a theology lesson, you know, am I justified by faith? I had to walk into church and look and say, do I have people who don't look like me in my life? Do I have people at my table? Because that's what this is actually really talking about. And being justified by faith, again, beautiful, wonderful, lovely truth. But there's something that's so much more that needs to be applied into my life. And so just wow. I encourage people to read the book because you have other examples <laughs> that are beautiful. And I think that we need another thing you talk about is prayer. You talk about praying in the raw. How does a color courageous disciple pray? We've heard a lot in this conversation in Christian contexts about the concept of lament. And this is one of the challenges that I give, that in your prayer life, make sure that there's a good, healthy dose of lament in order for us to make progress here with race relations. We have got to enter into one another's pain, have to enter into one another's pain. Most of us don't learn about prayer, at least in predominantly white culture, evangelical contexts, and learn about, okay, how do you pray? And lament being a part of it. But, you know, lament in terms of the Psalms, it's the most common type of Psalms, which are the written prayers and songs of the people of God, right? We have to learn how to see one another's pain, both as individuals and as peoples, enter into it and entrust that pain to God asking how we might be a part of making a difference. And so I think the fact that so many of us pray without lament as a kind of normal and natural part, it just feels so unnatural then <laughs> to be confronted with racial pain. And it's like, we don't know what to do with it. We need to lament it in our prayer and join in in what God's doing. One of the most beautiful things that some of our music leaders here do is lament, and not just abstract lament, but sometimes lamenting the real pains of what's happening inside of our society and people inside of our congregation, because our congregation has, you know, there's black people, there's white people, there's Asian people, there's Latino people, we have the whole variety here. And I remember after George Floyd was murdered, we had a service where that morning we got a Facebook message and they said, hey, if you don't lament George Floyd's murder, I'm going to leave the church. Now, we had already planned, though, to lament what happened. Why? Because 
our congregation is full of people who were hurting. And whether or not I, as a white person, was coming into that hurting, whatever I thought about what happened, I had a brother, I had a sister sitting across from me, next to me, who was hurting, and I needed to enter into their pain and understand what that pain represented for them. It wasn't just a single thing. It was a long list, a long history of experiences that were being loaded into that. I thought that was a beautiful part of your book, The Call to Lament. You also talk about the need for... I might call it corporate ancestral confession. Can you talk a little bit about that? We tend to be in America very individualistic. And so also then it makes it very challenging to understand the concept of lament because it's like, well, if I didn't personally hurt someone or do something wrong, I don't get it. Like I shouldn't lament. But that is actually not a biblical approach We see the prophets constantly lamenting on behalf of the whole people, faithful servants of God, yet understanding that there was sin among the people, that it was healthy and it was good to address it all at once. Why? Because we have to solve these problems together as well. In order to do that, we have to think, what has happened here? Whether I personally have contributed to it or not, the pain continued. The pain has happened. The hurt has happened. The pain continues. The problem is still there. Let us together enter into that pain, apologize for it, repent, whatever word you want to use, and own you know, the solution together. And so for our most intractable problems, it's the only way to own our problems together, even if you didn't personally contribute to it. And so again, that's the biblical model. I often think also just about the power and the healing that comes with repentance. I mean, we experience this in an interpersonal way when you're willing to apologize for something you've done wrong. And not only heals the relationship, but it's healing for the person, if it's done in the right way, who's been apologized to. And when I start thinking about this in an ancestral corporate way, it makes me realize that whether or not I was alive in the Jim Crow South or during the era of slavery, when I look back at my ancestors and seek to own and apologize and repent of what they did, that's not going to lead to total healing, but that is an important step in healing. And interestingly for me, as I've tried to confess those things, I've also then been able to see the ways that that racialized consciousness is inside of me too. <laughs> There's this process of, and I think it's so true yeah. so much. And it's like you confess the one thing and then you realize, oh my gosh, upstream, there's all these other things that I didn't see, but I could have never seen them had I not started there in that moment of confession. And I don't know why Christians are so resistant to this idea. I mean, we've been called to repent and confess. We know that we have the forgiveness of the loving Father. We should be the most fearless confessors in the world. And yet we get, you know, uptight and angry and upset and how dare, you know, I didn't. And no, that's not the model that we have. I just love these ideas of color courageous, Bible reading, color courageous prayer. You also talk about color courageous pilgrimages and fasting, which are both fabulous. I want to go on one of the trips that you mentioned, (laughs) and I'll just leave that. It's in the book. If you're intrigued, go pick up the book and you can read it there. Michelle, one last question for you. I'm sorry. This is a kind of jarring shift from where we've been, but you use the word anti-racist. And I think that that's another one of those words that's been weaponized. And a lot of people have a lot of different understandings of it. What does it mean? But I don't want to get into that as much as just understand from you, what does anti-racist mean? And maybe give us an understanding of why this term has become a lightning rod. I'd like to just draw attention to the fact that, you know, Martin Luther King, in his time, there were so many people who were afraid and suspicious and not understanding his message. And he started being labeled as a communist at a certain point. 
And it was this backlash that, okay, people are scared of communism and he's talking about equality. So he's a communist, right? And this ridiculous label was put on him. And we actually can see that kind of thing happening over and over again. We take a few steps forward in racial equality, people are talking about equality and let's get closer to that. And then they're slapped with something scary, you know, something that's been weaponized and no, no, this kind of equality will destroy us. And I don't know, but it's ridiculous to see how he was labeled. And it was like, that's not what he was doing, right? Like at all. And so the word anti-racism has been weaponized. And that is unfortunate, you know, to mean, I don't know, taking down white people or something. That is not how it emerged. (laughs) That was not the original idea. Are there some who might want to take down white people? I guess. But that was not the original meaning, nor the meaning that I use it. And I basically just say, look, the problem is that when you just say I'm not racist or like basically you're a non-racist, then there's a kind of passivity to that. And for me, the word anti-racist is about going from passive to proactive. That's all. Like there's a problem here and that we need to be proactive to solve it. And that's the kind of heart of what that word is. And and I talk, you know, in the book about antiperspirant. You want to get rid of that perspiration or antihistamine. You want to get rid of this thing that's causing you to break out. Like sometimes, you know, we understand that that's a good thing. And so we're saying racism is not good for us. We need to proactively, you know, engage it. So we have to be sensitive to how we use the word because it's been weaponized. And that's unfortunate. I'm just so appreciative of you being with us today and taking the time to chat. Could you just share with our audience where people can find your books and your work? All who are listening, you can find me at colorcourageous.com, colorcourageous.com. And you can also text the word courage to 44144. Again, text courage to 44144. And you'll get a bunch of bonus materials, previews of the books. I've written three books, Patrick. This is a part of a set for all ages. There's a picture book, a book for youth, and then the adult edition. And so you can get a preview of all three by texting courage to 44144. I really want to encourage you to do that, especially, I mean, I know a lot of our listeners are in churches. Some of them are ministry leaders. I can imagine a small group going through this and really being equipped, not just to think about ideas, but to walk away with practices that will shape them in the long term. And I think that's really important in this area because that's how we think about it is topically. (laughs) Like I read the book and now I can move on because I've done the mental work. And what you're encouraging is discipleship, which is what we all need. So again, I just want to encourage people to go and check (laughs) out out all three books, maybe get one for your kids or your teenager or the you know adult version for yourself. Would you mind praying for our listeners? I would love to. Lord, Father God, we thank you so much that you are sovereign. You are in control. Uh, despite whatever challenges, conflicts, and difficulties we may be facing in all areas, including race, God, we give glory to you and thanks for the fact that you are at work. You are at work. And God, I pray that all those who are listening in, God, would you show them how they may join in to the good work that you are already doing? Show them where they need to awaken. Show them where they might make a difference in Jesus' name and also grow closer to Jesus in the process of becoming color courageous. Thank you for the privilege of serving with and for you, Jesus. We pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much for being on the show with us today. Thanks, Patrick, for having me. 
Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. (laughs) Okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter, at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter.